I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the connection between statins and age-related macular degeneration. We use a very large bank of these records called the General Practice Research Database to look specifically uh, and locate people with AMD and compare them to a group of people without AMD. Well, with patients coming in and out, we had um, records of well over 5 million people. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Smith declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to A Scene From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Statins have a number of physiologic effects in several systemic pathologies. It has been postulated that statins might be beneficial in the pathogenesis of age-related macular degeneration. Since prospective studies of statin use and its influence in macular degeneration would be prohibitively difficult, the next best option is a population-based study. An enormous population-based study investigating the connection between statin use and AMD has just been published in the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Liam Smith is a principal investigator in that study, and he is my guest today. What evidence exists that statins are beneficial in AMD? Well, I think there are two strands of evidence. One is that statins are now very clearly established to be beneficial for cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis. And over the years, people have repeatedly noticed that AMD... Um, seems to be quite strongly associated with cardiovascular disease and there may well be a causal association there with some shared features. So one may expect statin to be beneficial. Um, One or two small studies done in the late 1990s in particular and early part of the century did suggest that statins had a markedly protective effect against AMD, both AMD at all and progression once people had AMD. Um, but these were quite small, so that was where the kind of ideas came from. By what mechanisms did the authors of those studies suggest that statins might be working? Well, I think there were a few different ones. There were there were there were issues of of just the that they may have a particularly protective effect against choroidal neovascularization in the same way that they protect against atherosclerosis. Um, there was a, a theory around the accumulation of cholesterol. Uh, being a part of the kind of main lesions of AMD. Uh, and I think a lot of people just felt, that, well, we didn't really know how they were going to work. But what was emerging over the last few years was that statins seemed to have quite unexpected actions in a range of different diseases. So it wasn't a great surprise that they were going to have an effect on the eye. Can I have you describe the design of this study? Uh, what we did was we used... Um, in the UK, people are registered with a primary care provider physician, and that primary care provider um, is responsible for uh, coordinating all their care, so all their hospital care, all their specialist care, 
So a lot of people might go off and see specialists. Everything they get referred by the general practitioner as their known, and letters from the specialist come back to the general practitioner and get entered into the medical records. And quite a large number, in fact, most now primary care providers have computerized records. And we use a very large bank of these records called the General Practice Research Database to look specifically uh, and locate people with AMD and compare them to a group of people without AMD. Now, were these patients from the National Health Service, or did this database include private patients too? No, it is entirely... Well, I mean, some of the... It's possible that some of the ophthalmologists people had seen were in the private sector, but the vast majority would have been in the National Health Service. And certainly the, the primary care providers were all from within the National Health Service. But the vast majority of care in the UK is done within the National Health Service. So it's quite a different situation to a lot of other countries. You wouldn't think that this would represent any sort of a, of a bias with regard to the I mean, I doubt it. I guess there would be a kind of small band of perhaps extremely well-off people who, who wouldn't register in this way with the National Health Service, but that would be quite a small selected band. And, in fact, the way the system works with National Health Service general practitioners is that even private um, specialists uh, would normally communicate their findings and their diagnoses to the patient's registered general practitioner. With the patient base that you had, how did you establish whether someone had macular degeneration? Was that done by looking at the diagnostic code in the database? Exactly. What what um, we relied very much on the fact that certainly our experience in the UK just tells us that general practitioners are very very unlikely to diagnose AMD, uh, and that was certainly borne out by the record. The records looked at in more detail, which I'll come back to, but. So these are patients who have seen an eye specialist, and the eye specialist, the ophthalmologist, has written to the GP saying, I think this patient has AMD, and the GP has recorded it. In this, the general practitioners who belong to this particular large research database um, have special training and special requirements to record such diagnoses, and they've repeatedly been shown to record a very high proportion of specialist diagnoses. So we were looking for clinical codes representing AMD, indicate that the patient did, did, did have AMD. Now, th- this, this may sound like a very cynical question, and I, yeah, no. I, I think you have to keep in mind the, the country that I'm calling from, but what incentive do the clinicians have to record the correct diagnosis? Well, they have very little um, direct financial incentive. I mean, the, the, the but at the same time, these are the primary care. This is what general practitioners in the UK do. They um, have patients registered with them, and that patient's medical record is very much in the ownership of that general practitioner. So it's it's very much in the interest of general practitioner in terms of providing good care, knowing about their patients, and will be a very normal and expected part of very basic um, clinical competence that such diagnoses, an important diagnosis of AMD, would be recorded in someone's notes. Getting back to the design of the study and, and the way that you examine the data, you define something mm-hmm. as, an, as the observation period. Can I have you describe what the observation period consisted of? Yeah, well, what happens is two things happen. One is that um, the, there's a large number of general practices 
something like three or four hundred group general practices, each of which will have something like between kind of three and ten primary care physicians working in it. And these, this large group of practices contribute their computerized data to this research database. Now, practices have joined that research database at different times. Um, it started in around 1988 and has continued to this day. Um, and at the same time, within those general practices, patients come in, they move into areas, they register with a general practitioner, and their records are then concurrent while they're registered with that general practitioner. But they can then move away. Um, so a patient observation time was the time for which they were registered with a practice, a general practice that was contributing data to the database up until uh, when we finished the study, which was around 2003, we had a kind of cutoff date. And obviously, anyone still registered at that date, that was the end of the observation period. So it was the time people registered with practices, general practices, that were contributing data to the research database with their observation period. What was the size of the patient base for this study? Well, with patients coming in and out, we had um, records of well over 5 million people uh, with something like an average observation period of around five and a half to six years on, um, as people came in and out. Um, so it's a very large number of patients, a very, very large number of person years observation. And what you did was you subdivided the patients into those who had diagnoses of macular degeneration yeah, yeah. and then you you established a a control population too can i have you yeah. talk a little bit about that yeah so what we did was uh we established uh people who had a first ever diagnosis of amd during the observation period so that the, it, these we, we had a lot of people who already had amd when we started to observe them when we started to get hold of their concurrent um clinical data so we didn't include them, but the people who had a first ever diagnosis of AMD, what appeared to be a new diagnosis during the observation period, were the cases. And for each of those, we identified around five people uh, who were the same sex, uh, had roughly the same year of birth within one or two years, and were from the same general practice, the same primary care provider. Uh, and we, So they were matched on that basis, and we randomly selected from the people of the same age and sex around five for each case. So we included around 18,000 cases and compared them to around 85,000 controls who had no record of AMD. Did the data account for the severity of macular degeneration in this population? Well, that was the one thing. I mean, there were two points to that. One, when we, when we were designing the study, we were aware that we would be using clinical diagnosis as the kind of cutoff point at which people were defined as a case. But in a way, that, that we weren't too concerned about that because that's very much how we increasingly are operating as epidemiologists. We're, we're accepting that the harder you look for disease in a person, the more likely you are to find it. And so we're using clinical presentation and saying, a clinicians finding a patient and saying, yes, they've got AMD, saying, okay, well, that's severe enough to be our case definition and the controls of people where that hadn't happened. Um, that was one thing we were happy with. On the, to balance that, when we, when we actually obtained the records of these people, what we did find was it was quite difficult to disentangle how bad their AMD was, and in particular, what sort of AMD they had. That was quite poorly recorded. And I think that reflects the fact that 
up until really, as you know, and until really quite recently, there was really considered very little treatment available for AMD, and there, w there wasn't a great emphasis by the primary care providers on, for example, disentangling whether people had uh, geographic atrophy or neovascular degeneration, because they, they wouldn't have really made any difference to their management. So I think that the recording of exactly what form of AMD people had and how severe it was wasn't as good as we'd hoped. Huh. So the dependent variable for this study mm. was the use of statins. You, you compared the percentage of the population of AMD patients uh, who were using statins to the percentage of the population of your control group. What did you find, Liam? Well, what we found was a little bit complicated because, of course, um, the patients were all matched uh, in various ways on age and sex and general practice. And we were also concerned that people who perhaps go and see their general practitioner, their primary care provider, more often are perhaps more likely to be diagnosed with AMD because they're complaining of poor vision or, and are more likely to be um, issued with a statin who are quite keen to also control for consultation behavior and frequency of consultation. Um, what we found was that among the cases, the cases were actually slightly more likely to have used the statin. Uh, just over 2% of them had used the statin prior to the diagnosis of AMD, uh, compared to around 1.6% among the matched control group. So in fact, it looked as if statins were used slightly more by cases prior to their diagnosis. But once we'd adjusted for consultation behavior, in fact, um, and, and various other potential confounders, including diabetes and smoking and alcohol intake and body mass index, uh, the odd ratio was just about 1. It would turn out to be 0.93 with a confidence interval surrounding 1 quite, a tight, quite tightly. So in fact, we seem to find no effect at all, no association really between statin use and AMD. So once more, what you found was that um, on first glance, that the, that the case group, that the group with macular degeneration mm. had a uh, higher... Slightly higher. Um, yes, yeah, sli slightly higher prevalence yeah. of statin, statin use, yeah. but then when, when you controlled for confounding variables, yeah. uh, that the two populations looked like they had about equal statin Ab use. Absolutely, that's exactly what we found. How do you interpret these findings? I'd say three things. I think one is I'd be very surprised no, no epidemiological study is perfect, but even so, I'd be very surprised, given our findings, if, if statins had a very strong effect on AMD that for some reason we'd completely miss. We may have missed something very small, but I don't think we'd have missed a very large effect of statins on AMD. I think one possibility, if that, the reason why I think I, there could be some doubt is that the period of observation and the period of exposure to statins among our cases was relatively short. Um, statins, as you know, are, are widely used for, for many years, many decades, in fact, in many people. And it may be that with very long-term use, one might expect slightly different effects and the effects to build up over time. And our, most of the people in our study, we had recorded exposure of a few years of statins. The other thing I'd say is that there's probably some basis for thinking that if statins are going to affect AMD, they're going to have a bigger effect on people with um, colloidal neovascularization rather than AMD as a whole. 
and there's relatively little reason why they would particularly affect geographic atrophy. Now, we couldn't really delineate the different types of AMD well enough to, to our own satisfaction to really kind of go into that. But I, I think it might be worth thinking again about whether statins might be protective in CNV, although we didn't find any evidence for that. I don't think we really had the um, adequate quality of data to really answer that question in, in precisely enough. Now, there's there's no simple way to ask what I'm going to ask next, so I, I will, I'll, I'll try my best to, to make this question clear. You, your results show that patients who required statins for systemic conditions did not benefit from statins in relation to macular degeneration, but the study did not investigate whether statins would be beneficial for patients who do not have other systemic indications for them. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I think in the UK, um, certainly during the period of the study, statins would have been largely used among people who either had had a heart attack or had existing coronary heart disease and had probably also been found to have a high cholesterol and measured. They're increasingly used in lower risk people and perhaps people who are just considered to be you know, at risk of disease rather than having overt disease. But I would agree with you that that, that Probably the statin users during the period of our study, which is mostly through the 1990s in the UK, were quite a high-risk group, the large majority of whom would have had existing cardiovascular disease. Liam, are there any recommendations that you can make for clinicians based on, on this study or, or, on, or on other studies too, looking at uh, statin use with regard to macular degeneration? I think... So, I mean, I think clearly many patients with AMD, you know, thinking from an ophthalmologist's point of view, many patients with AMD are going to have cardiovascular disease, and I certainly don't see any reason to be concerned about the use of statins in AMD. Um, at the same time, I have to say, I, I don't think there's a large benefit either. But I don't think statins are going to harm their eyes. Um, but from a research point of view, I'd, I'd quite welcome further research pursuing the issue of whether statins may have a beneficial effect on toroidal neovascularization, particularly studies that have much more detailed data and can perhaps look at things like disease progression as well as just looking at um, diagnosed disease. So I think for clinicians, I'm afraid at the moment I can't really say that statins are going to help patients with AMD or help prevent AMD, but I wouldn't completely close the door, um, particularly on choroidal neovascularization. I think it, it's exciting, the, the, the issue of, um, as we've seen with the complement factor H gene and AMD, I think the issue of the overlap between AMD and cardiovascular disease is, is potentially quite exciting and may well provide new ways in to thinking about AMD, thinking about prevention of AMD, and hopefully thinking about treatments as well. So I think that's potentially quite exciting area of research. Um, which clearly for people with AMDs um, gonna be, would be very welcome over the years. But no, I think, I mean, in terms of our study, I'm happy with everything across there. Liam Smith, thank you very much. That's all right. Thank you. Liam Smith is Senior Clinical Lecturer in Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine at the University of London. His paper, A Case Control Study of Age-Related Macular Degeneration and Use of Statins, appears in the September 2005 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology.
And now a comment about complement factor H. My name is Rick Rowe, and I'm a, currently a resident at Manhattan Nine Earth Road Hospital at New York University. I'm a third-year resident. I'm currently involved in uh, research uh, that is looking closely at complement factor H and its role in age-related macular degeneration. So we learned that complement system is an innate immune mechanism built into our body to uh, fight uh, infection. And complement factor H is specifically a regulating protein in the alternate complement pathway. If you remember, there are three different types of complement pathway. There's the innate complement pathway, the uh, alternative complement pathway, and the something called the lecithin complement pathway. Complement factor H basically turns off complement activation. The idea in age-related macular degeneration and how it's functioning in the pathogenesis of macular degeneration is that somehow there is complement activation at the uh, retinal pigment epithelium or Brooks membrane area. Complement is activated there and complement factor H should be down-regulating collateral damage in that area. However, if complement factor H is not functioning properly, then you're going to get collateral damage in Brooks membrane and in the retinal pigment epithelium. And the supposition is that maybe that's what's causing the formation of drusen. And once you get drusen, you get atrophy of the overlying retinal pigment epithelial cells and subsequently the retina itself, which leads to the phenotype of dry age-related macular degeneration. And if there's enough atrophy, some other mechanism kicks in where we get ingrowth of abnormal blood vessels, which leads to the exudative process of macular degeneration. That's where we think complement factor H could be uh, working in macular degeneration pathogenetically. We also know that complement, a mutation in complement factor H causes membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis in the kidneys. And the glomerular cells are actually very similar to retinal pigment epithelial cells. There is deposition of dense proteinaceous material in the kidneys when there's mutation in complement factor H, which leads to the glomerulonephritis. And interestingly enough, some patients with glomerulonephritis that have this mutation in complement factor H also have a picture in the retina very similar to age-related macular degeneration. The drusen, however, are a little bit more diffuse in the posterior pole, and they can get eventually an exudative process in the macula, similar to wet ARMD. I would also like to add that the pathogenetic mechanism which involves complement factor H leading to AMD was actually hypothesized even before the genetic association was found, and that a group uh, in Iowa led by uh, Hageman found that drusen contained many components of the complement pathway. Therefore, a pathogenetic mechanism was already introduced before this uh, discovery of the genetic association of the polymorphism in complement factor H, which could be leading to age-related macular degeneration. And I think this lends further support to the role that complement factor H may be playing in AMD. 
I've been asked by several listeners to create a mailing list to distribute information about upcoming programs. To keep with the podcast's interactive theme, I've set up a discussion group. By joining the group, you will get occasional emails from me describing upcoming programs, topics I'm working on, and guests I have lined up for interviews. You'll also be able to suggest papers and guests for future podcasts, and you'll be able to discuss the podcasts with other listeners. To get enrolled, click on the Contact Us button on asseenfromhere.com and indicate that you want to be enrolled in the mailing list in the message body. I will, of course, not send spam. Colon, close parentheses, Josh. Ask questions of Dr. Smith or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Or Skype, JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.